Again, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, quoting Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he, God the Father, also says in another place, quoting Psalm 110, verse 4, You are a priest forever, according or after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I've alluded to it, I've said it, but it it really is an understatement to say that we must remind ourselves, we must be reminded again and again and again what Christmas and Christmas time and Advent is all about. I mean, really, just think for a second. What are we celebrating? It is beautiful to enter a room and to see flowers and trees and lights, uh, decorations, to, to drive around at night and to see all of it, uh, to, to plan celebrations, <clears throat> to have traditions, to, to have gifts, to want gifts, to give gifts, uh, to, to, again, decorate and do lights, to be busy, right? It just comes with this time of year. And again, if we aren't mindful, we will drift into all of that busyness and it'll be December 25 or 24, whatever, you know, depending on when you have your time with, with the family or, you know, your people and, and it's Christmas and where did it, where did it go? So we, we want to be deliberate. Really part of my desire is that our time Sunday morning in these weeks, even in the book of Hebrews is to press us to to slow down and to be deliberate and meditative on why we celebrate Christmas. Of course, at the center of Christmas is a person, is, is, a, is a child, is baby Jesus. But even it's worth asking again, why? Why did he come? Why the, the child in the manger? Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, Joseph is told that his betrothed will bear a son, 
And the angel tells Joseph that his name is to be called Jesus. That's what we hear and read. Of course, it's transliteration of uh, Yeshua, Joshua. It means God saves or Yahweh saves. That baby is to be called Jesus. And then the angel says, why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Or in Luke's account of the birth of Jesus, where we have Mary's story, Mary is told that, or just not in Mary's context, but to to the shepherds rather, um, they're told that unto them, but unto the world is born that day in the city of David, who? A savior. So in Matthew, we're told the baby's name will be Jesus because he's to save his people from their sin. And in Luke, to the shepherds, they're told that there's a savior born Christ, the anointed one, the promised one, the Messiah, the Lord. So again, we have Jesus, whose name means God saves, Yahweh saves, and he will be born and given that name because people need to be saved from their sins. In Luke, a savior is born. And so we're confronted again and again in the text that the reality of why Christmas and why Jesus is because we need a savior. And that's not something too many people outside of people in church think about, honestly. Saving from what? Sin? What? You know, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm better than this person. Maybe not as good as that person. Uh, and, and, we, and we too, we can think that way. But boy, it's, it's, it's not an idea that those outside of the church think about. And honestly, it, it's a head scratcher. How do we, within the church... And this is just an aside for a minute. How do we communicate this message? I think we understand, most of us do anyway, that's why we're here, that, that we are sinners. If we're Christians, we're, we're saved, but we sin. We're simultaneously just, righteous through Christ in God's eyes because of Christ, but we, we sin and, and we experience this progressive sanctification, becoming more and more holy. That's life. We've been saved, but we're being saved we're in need of a savior. I need, I need him. We, we understand that. We need to be reminded. But how do we communicate that? And it's a challenge continuously. How do we communicate to a, a post-Christianized world? That's, that's where we live, especially here in Sonoma County, in California, on the West Coast. How do we communicate to people that this holiday season, that baby in the manger was born to save the world from sin, from this, this falling short of the glory of God, this, this, this not obeying what God has said and not living up to what God wants. Uh, that's a challenge. And I, that's not the point of this sermon. That's just to tell you that's something I think about and pray about. We, we, we are called to communicate this, and we'll touch on that today. But for us this morning, let's remember on this third Sunday of Advent, why Christmas, why the baby? Because we needed to be saved. Or the way Jesus communicated it as an adult many years later as he was walking and preaching, speaking of himself in Mark 10, 45, he said, even the son of man, that was his designation of himself, calling an idea from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve, and then most specifically, to give his life as a ransom. That's speaking of his 
death on the cross, to, to go in our place and to, to pay the penalty for sin, to give his life as a ransom. All of that, church, is to remind us our deepest need, our deepest need is to be forgiven and made right with God. And we need to be reminded of that, and that's what we find even in Hebrews today. And our passage is going to show us that Jesus is the one with the authority and the answer to that deepest need. We, we find here Jesus, our great high priest. We've been seeing that he is greater than Moses, greater than Aaron, greater than the sacrificial system. And we are in a section of Hebrews where it's going to keep coming back to this high priest uh, analogy, and Jesus is the great high priest. We saw that word last week especially. He's also the faithful one, the merciful one, the gracious one. He was fully human, and, and being all of that, he can be this, this high priest. But as the great high priest, he, in fact, is the one with the authority and the answer to that, that deepest need that we have, which is to be forgiven. And if we are forgiven, then our, 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 what are we supposed to do? And here's the you know, punchline of the message of the sermon this morning. It's to adore him, to worship him, to follow him, to obey him. So let's take a look uh, in, in our text. And what we're going to do, the text breaks down into three movements. And I'm going to steal one scholar's uh, wording for these, these breakdowns uh, of the summary. What we have first in uh, verses 1 to 4, we have the typical high priest uh, and what that meant uh, coming out of the, what the scriptures say in the Old Testament, the typical high priest. Then we're going to see our appointed high priest in verses 5 and 6. And then we're going to see our perfect high priest in verses 7 through 10. So the typical high priest, our appointed high priest, and our perfect high priest. Again, all of that showing us that our deepest need is met by this one Jesus, who is the authority and the answer to save us. So let's take a look. Verses 1 through 4. The typical high priest according to the Old Testament. For every high priest, so again, pulling the thought he had started in uh, chapter 4 right before this and actually had begun in chapters 2 and 3, every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So that's the first thing right there in that verse. We see how the typical high priest works, how the typical office of the high priest worked according to the scriptures. And the point there in verse 1 is that a typical high priest, the high priest, uh, from the Old Testament, originates from among the, the people. So even in Exodus 28, verse 1, it says, uh, God says that they were to bring near Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel. Hear the same idea there, from among the people. And in our passage, it says, every high priest chosen from among men comes from the people. And so that's, that's the starting point. Every high priest, every typical high priest originates from the people. Exodus 28, many other texts speak of that as well. Then we have in verses two, uh, 1 and 2, a little further understanding that the high priest's role is to represent people and matters to God. Right? We've talked about that already. Jesus, where we were told in Hebrews earlier, is the apostle, the one sent from God to communicate to us what God wants, but then... As high priest, he uh, offers and, and represents us back to, to God. And it says there in verses 1 and 2 uh, that it's, 
especially and specifically related to offering gifts and sacrifices for sins. So according to the, the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, and, or excuse me, Leviticus uh, 16 especially, uh, we, we have a detail of what the, the high priest would do. Um, and there were, again, general responsibilities that the high priest shared with all the other priests, but um, specifically the, the high priest was the one alone who could offer sacrifices on the Day of Atonement, that, that one day a year when only he could do certain things. All the other times he could uh, join in the offerings and the worship leading with the other priests, but Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, 1 to 25, tells us that this high priest once a year would take two goats and a ram from among the Israelites. There would be casting of lots for the goats then the high priest would slaughter one of the goats as a sin offering for the people. The other goat would be brought out of the tent to be the scapegoat, would be the one uh, he would put his hands on the scapegoat on this uh, goat, confessing the sins of the people, and then send the goat off to, to, to run. And so there's this picture of paying for sin, sacrifice for sin, and then taking sin uh, away. So the high priest alone would, would get to do this. And by carrying out this part of God's instruction, the high priest is representing the people before God, being their representative, doing these gifts and sacrifices and, and making atonement for sin. But the next thing we see, looking ahead into verses two and three, it says this. The high priest can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. Isn't that just fun to think? We, we are ignorant and wayward people. There you go. Don't you feel good about yourself today? But it's true. In our ignorance, we, we sin. Of course, we sin deliberately. We are wayward. But what it says here is that the high priest ought to be and could, could be, can be gentle. Why? Because the high priest himself is beset. It's the picture of being surrounded or covered. It's the same word that you've heard many times, Hebrews 12, that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Uh, it's like in, encircled. It's the same word translated uh, when a millstone was, was uh, hung from the neck. Okay, so to be encircled. Uh, here, the translators use the word beset. A high priest, a typical high priest, could be gentle, could understand the waywardness and the ignorance because he himself is surrounded, covered with his own weaknesses and not, not physical weaknesses, but weaknesses related to sin. The high priest knew that he himself too was a sinner. And because of this, verse three, the high priest, what does he have to do? He's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins. And he has to do that before he can then offer for the, the people. And then finally, a typical high priest, verse 4, um, doesn't just decide one day, I'm signing up, you know, like, I want to be in the secret service or, you know, I want to be in the FBI or I want to be in CIA, which I've always wondered, like, how do you become, I think FBI you maybe can, but CIA, or CIA and secret service, um, and, and if you are in those jobs, don't come tell me because you're not supposed to, but right, sometimes though, if you grow up watching movies and shows like, oh, that would be cool to volunteer and to, well, you, you couldn't just sign up to be high priest. It was an appointment. It was an appointment by, by God. And so verse four, no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. And again, 
references, uh, among other texts, Exodus 28. Again, Leviticus 8, number 16. Here's the point. The office of high priest has a divine authority to it. So we're going to come back to that in just a quick moment related to Jesus, our great high priest. Okay? The office of high priest, even the typical high priest, it, it had a divine authority to this position. But that's a typical high priest. And our author wants us to understand that. There's uh, continuity with Jesus, the great high priest, with typical high priest. But there's discontinuity as well. And we begin to see that now as we look at our appointed high priest. Second point in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. Look what it says now about, about Jesus. So also Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, he did not exalt himself. In other words, he didn't ch- chase glory or choose this glorified state uh, when, you know, in his own uh, time on earth. No, just as the typical high priest is appointed, it's a divine appointment, there's authority with it, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, and let me just pause, because we, at this point, we, we probably want uh, the second scripture we're going to see in a second. We, we want to hear something like Psalm 110, verse 4. You are a priest. There, there it is, right? Uh, forever after the order of Melchizedek. But, but notice what the author does. He quotes again a scripture he quoted back in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. We saw this many weeks ago in the beginning of our study of Hebrews. Actually, flip back there for a minute. The beginning of Hebrews chapter 1. Let me, let me reread starting at Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. This is where we were introduced to Jesus being greater than angels, okay? And, and just listen to, uh, be reminded of how this sermonic letter began. Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. What more could be said about him? Well, the author continues, In verse 3 in the middle, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What we saw last week where it said he passed through the heavens, right? He, He died, he rose, he was on the earth, and then he ascended. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And at this point, it's not the name Jesus. We think name, but of course, at this point, the author wants us to think son. And so now he quotes Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And so we looked weeks and weeks back at 
what that means for, for the second person of the Godhead uh, to come into this earth and, and of course, be, be fully God, fully human, but, but to be given this title of, of son. And here we are now back in five, and we've just heard about a typical high priest, and the writer is making this point that Jesus isn't a typical one. He's a great one, uh, and he's uh, like typical high priests in certain ways, okay, but, but he's different. Our appointed one, he has this appointment from God, and yet, instead of jumping to 110 verse 4 about Jesus being a priest, he returns to Psalm 2 verse 7 for the second time. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And then he adds, and as he says in another place, Psalm 110.4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Why? What is happening here? Well, probably a couple of things are happening. Uh, one, uh, the author is pulling these, these words. We see them in English, we hear them. You are my son, you are a priest. So both of those Texts use the same language of God the Father speaking uh, of Jesus and to Jesus. So he's pulling those ideas together. But there's something to the authority that, that Jesus has. Not only is he, in fact, designated and appointed a priest after the order of Melchizedek, but the author doesn't want uh, his original hearers or God doesn't want us to forget he was appointed a son, he was appointed the son. And so let's just remind ourselves again what is going on there. Um, the fact that Jesus has inherited this, this name, this title, um, speaks to his glory uh, that he has with the Father. It speaks of his divinity. No angel has that, of course, Hebrews 1 said. And as I read uh, before when we looked at this, we hear words like, Today I have begotten you, and, and it sounds like there was a time when Jesus wasn't the son, but then he was begotten and became the son. But John 1 tells us that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and he's always existed, and it goes on to, to describe this. So again, for us, we have to understand this, this language of begotten and what, uh, what the writer here is, is speaking of. And really, it's a prophetic text. It's the idea uh, quoted elsewhere. Uh, Romans 1.4 says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power at his resurrection. He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And so there's this, this bestowal, if you will. And again, I used the analogy in the Roman world, in the day that Hebrews was written, um, the idea was understood better. So, for example, when sons came of age back in uh, this time, they were formally bestowed with the family name, even though, in one sense, they always had it. So the writer that I quoted says, his own son, John, has his name and is his son, and there's nothing that can change that. But if living in the Roman world, when John came of age, he would be bestowed with or credited with the family name in a formal way. He would, at that point, become his son. And that helps us then understand what is happening here with Jesus' sonship status. In a sense, he came of age because of the resurrection. So he has always existed. He's always been God. But with his coming and what he accomplished, again, Romans 1, 4, he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his 
resurrection. So back to Hebrews then, for our author wanting us to see that our high priest is appointed. He's not just a typical high priest. Oh, he's appointed also, even as Aaron was, now we are reminded again to him, God the Father said, Psalm 2-7, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And God the Father said in Psalm 110 verse 4, you are a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus has the authority. He has been appointed. He didn't decide to do it. He didn't grow up and decide, you know, I think I'll be a first century rabbi and I'll, I'll follow, have people follow me. I mean, right, there's obviously some choices he, he made, but this was an appointment from eternity past and God bestowed this appointment on him. He was called a son. He was called a high priest and, and that is who our high priest is. So again, our deepest need, let's keep that sort of simmering in our minds. Our deepest need, why Christmas, why the baby? is because we need to be forgiven of our sins. We need to be saved from our sins. We need to be, to be saved. This, this, this separation that exists because of our rebellion as humans needs saving. And Jesus was appointed for that role. And he has the authority from God and not only the authority, not only that appointment, uh, but he's the answer. He's ultimately the answer. So then, in the final verses of our text today, we see our perfect high priest. And we, really, we could, we could say we see the road that he took. Because yes, in one sense, the author's clear. He, he was appointed, and he was called by God to this. But, but he, he didn't just, you know, as, as a... I don't know, proverbial, spoiled, rich son, heir, you know, receive the mantle, receive the badge, receive it from the father and, you know, not do anything and just, you know, sort of take on this mark of nobility. No, he, he followed a, a very unique path, we could say. So listen to verses 7 to 10. In the days of his flesh, that's speaking of his life, his 30-some years, his time on earth. In, in the days of his flesh, Jesus, and again, he's the one appointed by God. He's called son. He's called high priest. But in, in his life, Jesus, verse 7, offered up prayers and supplications. He, he was a man of prayer. And specifically, the, our, our author says, with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, and again, there's that designation, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. See, there's the answer. He became the source to our greatest need. Being designated, now again, we have this this phrase, designated a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus, our perfect high priest, didn't just receive this appointment and sit back and do nothing, but no, he, he lived a life of suffering. He lived a life of obedience. He lived a life of, of endurance, the endurance that this letter that's reminding us that Jesus is greater, nonetheless, it's calling us to this kind of a life. So let, let's just unpack a few things. Because um, there's some t- ideas in here that uh, 
can be misunderstood, and we want to be clear uh, what, what they're not saying and what they are saying. Now, when our author says that Jesus learned obedience, that, that he was made perfect, um, the, the author is not suggesting that, in fact, Jesus uh, was disobedient and he had to get to a point where after being disobedient and disobedient again, then finally he learned to be o- obedient. Nor is, is he saying that, that by being made perfect, he was imperfect in a moral sense, sinner, and then at some point he reached perfection. That's what it sounds like on the surface, but we've already been told over and over again that Jesus, as our high priest, was one tempted like us, but without sin. He never sinned. He, he didn't experience sin like we do. He experienced a temptation, but he was able to say no, and that's partly what makes him be our high priest. So what, what are these words? What do these ideas mean? Well, again, we've, we've seen them already a little bit, but for one, the idea of perfection, um, here it's communicating the concept of finishing or completing by making it all the way. Okay, he, he, was, he reached perfection. That's what the word can mean. He reached the conclusion. His life as our high priest, the one appointed by God, was meant to be one of learning to obey and as a child and yes, mom, yes, dad, and what they ask of him. And, and sometimes, right, we remember those of us that were kids once, which is all of us, and maybe some of you kids in the room, you know sometimes obeying mom and dad isn't always easy. It's not always fun. But we, we, as we obey, we realize, okay, maybe this, this rule, this, this thing is because this is good for me and better. So even though I don't like it, I'll do it. Oh, well, you know, that turns out to make some sense, right? Sometimes we parents, we get it right and, uh, and so forth. So Jesus, he was perfected. He, he, he was on this path of finishing or completing his whole life of, of being one to, to go through what we go through. And so in that sense, he, he learned obedience. He completed or was perfected, not that he was imperfect or sinful, but uh, as one writer says, he drank the full measure of the experience that was needed in order to come before the throne with a sacrifice and with which our sins would be addressed. For the son to learn obedience means that he said yes to the father's will in an extreme situation that he had not encountered. I, I do find it fascinating. And and several times this week, I thought about what what the writer says. Loud cries and tears. Probably the author has in mind Jesus in the garden. In in Luke's account of those last hours of Jesus' life, we know that he did cry out, Father, if you're willing, take this cup, this, this picture of God's wrath being poured out. Uh, he, he knew that was why he had come. He came to give his life as a ransom. But hours before, knowing that he would go to the cross as a human, he didn't want that. Jesus wasn't just some martyr with a martyr's complex. No, he knew the agony that was coming and he prayed as a human, Father, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And this is fascinating. We know the story, and the writer to the Hebrews knows the story. Jesus went to the cross. <laughs> the Father was not willing for Jesus to skip the cup of, of his wrath being poured out. But listen to what it says. 
He offered prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, right? God could have taken that cup. And I wanted to say, you know, I guess I don't want to say these next words because it's troubling. And Jesus was heard because of his reverence, his, his piety, his, his, his life. He was heard? Wait a minute. He said, Father, take this cup. What do you mean he was heard? That's, that's the part of prayer we don't like, right? God sometimes says no. He was heard in the garden. Father, take this cup, but not my will, yours be done. And the Father heard his prayer. Jesus lived this life of suffering and endurance. He learned his obedience. He, he completed the path. He, he did what was necessary so that he could be this, this one who would be our great high priest, but who, before he would be exalted to that role, would offer himself. And he, he in his flesh, prayed, take it. And God heard him. But God said no. God says no to our prayers sometimes. And that's not the point of this passage, but, but it is an application. We, we struggle. God, I've been praying. Why are you not answering? Maybe he is. And sometimes his answer is yes. Sometimes his answer is not yet. And sometimes his answer is no. He said no to the son. He, he heard his son. passage ends this way. Verse 9, and being made perfect, reaching this completion of the life he came to live, he became the source of eternal salvation. See, there it is. To all who obey him. The one who had the authority and who was the answer to our deepest need. He was the source of salvation to all who obey him. Again, as I've said a few different times in this series, let's not think of Christianity as just having a ticket. We've prayed a prayer, we've been forgiven, now I've got it, I'm ready to go, who cares how I live, I'll make it one day. No, to to be a Christian is to be forgiven, yes, but it's to follow God in obedience to him, to follow the Lord Jesus, to follow God's word, to learn obedience, to, to struggle, to fall short and to repent, and God loves to hear his sons and daughters repent. And he says, I forgive you. Come on. And he, he, he is gracious to us. But he became the source and eternal salvation to all who obey him. And then again, verse 10, being designated, being given this authority by God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek? But we'll come back to him. We are going to see him again in Hebrews, and we'll learn more about him at that time. But I want to end this morning with just, again, as I started, why Christmas, why the baby? Because our deepest need is to be saved from our sin. And one of the things, as I said, I've been praying is, God, help me, help our church communicate that to a world that just doesn't think that's, matters anymore. Sin and, you know, and and I think one of the ways, I mean, it's just one thought. One of the ways we can communicate this is when we live lives of worship, when we at Christmas time, especially in the midst of 
the presents and the traditions and the meals and the activities and the schedules, all of it, on top of all the struggles too, right? Finishing up school for kids and, and the demands of, of semester coming to a close in the midst of still living in a world struggling with a virus and, and what it means and, and all of it, living with people around us that are still very scared over sickness and, and all of that. And again, it's not about being cavalier or anything, but, but if we have this hope that our high priest has been appointed and he's the answer by God for our need and we've experienced it and at Christmas time with everything going on, if we can, in, in the midst of it, come and adore Christ the Lord, if we can, in the midst of it, recall his life, that he, he was born to die. He came because he needed to live this life and live a perfect life that we can't live, his, his active obedience, and then go to the cross and, and, and suffer and, and bear God's wrath, his passive obedience. Uh, we could say, praise the Lord for what we've experienced in Jesus, the baby who lived and died. Thank you, Jesus, for your life. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. I think if we are able to experience and worship him for all of that, then just maybe we will, we will be a reflection of that, that goodness to a world that might just ask some questions. How is it that you handle all of this stuff and, and, and we can speak to who he is and speak to what he has done? Over the next two weeks, over our life, we can, we can worship and in response to worship, live a certain way. And that's really the order it should be anyway. We, we look upward. He is worthy. We are needy, but he's worthy and he's done all this for us. He's got the authority and the answer to our deepest need. And, and we can live out of that and, and give him praise. And I think maybe a watching world will get a glimpse of that. And maybe God will give us a chance to speak to that. We're going to sing a, one more song this morning, and it might be a new song to you. You may have heard it on the radio. Um, it's called Hallelujah for the Cross. As uh, Andrea and Sherry come up, let me just remind you, Hallelujah is simply uh, a word that means praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And so we are going to sing um, praise to the Lord for the cross. And yes, it's Christmas time, but he came as a baby to go to the cross, and in between that, he lived for us, and he showed us the way, and so let's, let's worship him, church, now, and let's worship him today and tonight and this week for who he is and what he's done. So would you stand, and let me pray, and we will, we will sing this, this song together. Father, we do thank you so much for Jesus, and you bestowed on him the authority as our great high priest. He is the answer to our greatest need, and we, we are thankful and we rejoice. And, and yet, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we get so caught up in everything, like everyone else, and it's part of life, and you're gracious with us. But God, may this morning be just one part of our own sort of hitting reset so that we can be people of prayer and praise and worship for the baby this time of year, but a baby who came ultimately to die for us, to forgive us, to be the answer to our deepest need. We, we say hallelujah 
for the cross. In your name we pray, amen.